Grab a seat and grab your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Mark, chapter 11. While you're turning there, just a big howdy to all of you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers here at Clear Creek. If you are a guest, a warm welcome to you from all of us. We are honored that you'd be a part of this time with us. This morning, we are coming to the close of volume two of our Mark series. You say, what does that mean? Here's what that means. Today's the last day we're going to talk about Mark for about a month. We're going to take about three weeks to dive into a series that I'm not even going to tell you what the title is because it won't make sense. But when you come, I hope to make sense of a title that does not make a lot of sense on the outset. Confused? Okay, good. Come back in two weeks and we'll uh, try to make it even worse. (laughs) So that's what we'll be doing through the month of August. This morning, though, I want to begin with just an obvious point. I am amazed at the people who have this ability to diagnose the problem, especially when the problem is not real obvious. Do you know anyone who just has sort of a sixth Since, raise your hand if you know anyone who, man, they just sort of see the problem before you can see the problem. They can identify the issue before other people identify the issue. One of my favorite stories of a guy like this is of this man, Charles Steinmetz. Charles Steinmetz was an electrical engineer with a towering intellect. He was just a brainy, brainy guy. In fact, Upon retirement, he was called by a major appliance manufacturer. And they said, hey, listen, we've run into a problem. One of our major pieces of equipment has a problem. And all of our guys and gals, they've looked, they've searched, they've tried to find what the problem was. We can't find it. Would you come see if you can identify the problem with this massive piece of machinery? So he said, sure, I'll come. So Steinmetz shows up. He looks around all this massive machinery. He runs a few tests. And without saying a word and only spending less than two hours there, he pulls out of his pocket a piece of chalk, walks over to one little spot, and marks an X on the machine. He says, there's your problem. Puts the chalk back in his pocket, heads on home. Sure enough, the engineers, they get in there, they begin to dig it open. They realize he found the problem. He diagnosed the issue that was under the surface. They're thrilled, so they fix it. The appliance manufacturer is now back up and running. And everyone's really, really happy until Steinmetz sends them his bill for his work. They send, he sends a bill... Now, this is early 20th century, but he sends a bill for $10,000. And they're like, you spent two hours looking. That's it. You need to send to us an itemized invoice for why you can justify $10,000. And so he said, no problem. So he sent this back to them. He wrote... Making one chalk mark, one dollar. Everybody say, one dollar. He says, knowing where to place it, $9,999. 
Everyone else can mark a place, but they didn't know where to mark the problem. If you know where the chalk mark goes, listen to me, if you know where the chalk mark goes in your life, if you know where the chalk mark goes in your situation, if you know where the chalk mark goes and what's happening right now, then even the seemingly impossible problems, even the unbeatable sins, even the situations that seem beyond hope are not impossible. But if you don't know where the X goes, then even the simplest of issues will defeat you every time. When we come to Mark chapter 11, here's what I want you to think this morning. Here's the picture. Are you ready? This morning, Jesus Christ, after three years of traveling through Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, teaching the kingdom of God is Hear, repent, and believe the good news after he healed, taught, rebuked. He healed some more and traveled around teaching. He finally is entering Jerusalem. It's going to be the last week of his life. He will be executed on a Roman cross. He is coming into town on Palm Sunday. And here's the image. Are you ready? Jesus is going to show up. And he's not going to pull a piece of chalk out of his pocket. Rather, he's going to march to the very X marks the spot. And he's going to say, right there, that's the problem. You think it's all these other things, but that right there is the problem. Quick question. If Jesus sat down with you this morning and you were to be honest with him and say, Jesus, things aren't clicking quite right. I'm not sure why, but I get the sense there's something more. Where would he put the X in your life? If you say, Jesus, I'm not really sure why, but my relationships, there's always this thing I keep bumping up against. In every relationship, where would he put the X? Jesus, with my children, I love them. I gave birth to them. I think, you know, my wife's an angel, and so surely they're heavenly, but there are days that I'm convinced they didn't come from heaven. You catch my drift. Where would Jesus put the X. You say, Jesus, I'm constantly at odds with my boss. Jesus, I'm constantly at odds with myself. Jesus, I've got this secret sin. Jesus, I've got this very public sin. Jesus, I've got an anger that won't quit. Jesus, where is the X supposed to go? Where would he put it this morning? Because if he will show you your X, because listen to me, friends, every one of us has an X, a place that he wants us to take our next step. And if he will show you, and if we will identify the X, then even those things that today you come in here, and you, you look so good. By the, by the way, congratulations, you look really good this morning. You took showers, or at least did the little French bath, whatever it was. You look, and you smell good. But you know that thing you came in with. So what is it that he would put the X on? So here, let me give you the setup. We're going to really dive in into verse 12 here in a moment, but let me kind of give you the setup to what happens leading into verse 12. Jesus shows up to Jerusalem, and he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And we're told this in verse 9 and 10. It says, And those who follow Jesus 
What's this word right here? Let's say it all together. Ready? One, two, three. They shouted. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now listen, here is the picture. If you've been in church for any length of time, you probably have seen this picture. You, you may have seen that old painting of Jesus coming in. And Jesus in our pictures is always some really, really, really white Caucasian guy who has a permed hairstyle. And he's sitting sort of catty corner on the donkey. And you have all these people who are lining the streets. Everyone's happy. You've got a dad there with his arm around his wife. You've got Johnny or, or Josephus or whatever you know, right there. And, and you know, they're all waving at Jesus. Someone's like, oh, here, here's my coat. Another one, here's a palm branch. And it looks so happy. It looks so sweet. It looks like a 4th of July parade in the Middle East, doesn't it? But that is not the picture. I want you to look at this section through the lens of desperation. There, during this time, was a group of people in Israel who were so committed to the ways of Yahweh, of God, that they resorted to, wrongly, but they resorted to violence, to, to assassinations, to subversive attacks against the Roman Empire that had come in and crushed the Israelite people. And not only did they attack the Romans, they would attack any sympathizers of Rome. And these people were called the zealots, for they were zealous for the ways of God. And they had a slogan that they would yell. And that word, that slogan was, Hosanna. It meant, save now. And you notice, what's this little punctuation right here? Anyone know what that one is? Exclamation mark. An exclamation mark is a shouting mark. It's a proclamation mark. It is a declaration mark. It is not a whimper. It is not a suggestion. It is a cry for help. The people who are lining the path are not there hugging their spouse going, oh, this is so good. They are pleading with Jesus using the slogan of the zealots, save us now. And when they said save us, they said, Jesus The big X in our world, that big place that we just say, here's the problem, it's Rome. And the place where Rome represents its power is Herod's castle. Jesus, save us from Herod, save us from Rome, because if you will fix our circumstances, everything will be okay. And so Jesus comes into the city, and he goes, we're told, in verse 11 to the temple, and it's evening time, so he doesn't stay long, but just, just get this picture. Jesus comes into the temple, the, the heart of the Jewish culture, and he looks around at this massive structure. And you can almost imagine him just pausing and pondering, considering what is about to take place and what he is about to do. He soaks it in. There's that moment of silence. And then he turns around and he leaves. And he, we're told that he goes to one of the suburbs of Jerusalem, a town called Bethany. It'd be like if you came to Chattanooga this morning, visited Clear Creek, sort of looked around, and then went to one of the suburbs, maybe to East Brainerd for the night. And so Jesus sleeps in Bethany, and then the next, night, next morning he gets up. And this is where we pick up in verse 12. Notice what it says here. The next day as they, this is Jesus and his followers, were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. 
When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, now this is a weird story. I'm going to have to explain. Okay, so hang with me here. Then he said to the tree, by the way, when was the last time you talked to a tree? Okay, weird story. Just hang with me though. He said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it and they were concerned. Well, no, they heard him say this. Now, you think, okay, what happened? Was it like a low blood sugar moment for Jesus? Was he getting hangry? What, what happened here? Here's what's going on. Fig and fig trees were a great fruit, especially for hungry travelers in the Middle East because fig trees had two different fruit-bearing seasons. The first one was in the springtime in March and April. By the way, that's when this event would have taken place because it took place what Jesus is about to do around Passover. That's in the springtime. But during the springtime, a fig tree would, would produce a small miniature fruit. The way you knew that it was supposed to be producing that little fruit is when leaves would come out in the spring, the miniature fruit would come as well. And so a hungry traveler would come along, grab some of those little mini fruits, and it's like a divine fruit snack as you are on your way. Then the big harvest, the bigger one, would be in the fall. And so here's the picture. Jesus is hungry, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, and on his way he sees a fig tree, and it looks healthy. There's leaves on the tree. Oh, yeah, I'm going to get some figs. But when he gets close to the tree, he notices that this tree that has leaves, that should be producing fruit, has no fruit. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Jesus, throughout his ministry, would refer to the religious culture of his day using various imagery, including that of a fig tree. He was using imagery of a tree. Now, quick question. Do you think it is a coincidence that Jesus, before he goes to the temple that we're about to read about, the center of the religious world for the Jews, that before he goes there, do you think it's a coincidence that he encounters a tree that looks healthy from the outside but is not bearing any fruit? Do you think that's a coincidence? Jesus, as a master teacher used parables and images and metaphors. And in this case, he is taking a picture he has used before and he begins to make a picture of what they're about to experience. He's about to say, it looks good, but it's empty on the inside. And so he says, let's go. And they continue on their way. And finally, they get down in verse 15 to Jerusalem. On reaching Jerusalem, we're told... Jerusalem, again, is the center for the Hebrew world. That was the epicenter of all that it meant to be a Hebrew. Jesus, we're told, entered the temple area. Some of you might see that in your text it may say the temple courtyard or the outer courtyard. Now, if, the, if Jerusalem is the epicenter for what it means to be a Hebrew, the temple is the heart of that place. Because that is where sacrifice is made on behalf of sinful people to God so you can have relationship with God. Jesus shows up and he comes into the temple area and notice what happens. This is one of those weird moments because you think, and I think, that if Jesus 
were coming to liberate the people of Israel. If he was to answer the cry, Hosanna, where would he go first? Would he go to the place of religion or would he go to the political powers that were creating so much chaos? This is where if you're following Jesus and you're coming to Jerusalem, you're like, all right, we're going to go see Herod. It's time to depose that tyrant. But he doesn't go to Herod. He doesn't go up there and mark an X. He goes right into the center of their religious experiences. And he begins to draw a big X and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it. A den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So here's what I want you to get. Let's kind of get in this place. Jesus walks into the center of the temple. Now listen, when you think temple, don't think the church building here. In fact, their temple would make our church look like a pittance. Here's a picture of the temple in the first century. This is actually just a portion of it. You'll notice the outer court. I'll show you another picture in a moment. But there are a number of different courtyards. Here in the very center, you have the holy place. And the holy of holies is inside the holy place. It's the innermost place. This is where God resides. This is where you came to be close to God. And the idea was the closer you got to that space, the closer you were to God. Some of you are here this morning and all you want is to be closer to God, but you feel like you are on the outside looking in because of what you've done, where you've been, and you go, I've got an X, but I can't find where it's supposed to go. And so you have the holy place and the most holy place. There are other different categories of spaces. Up close to it, you have the court of the priest, the courtyard of the priest. So if you're a priest, you could go there. If you were just a man, you can go into the priest, but you had a special spot, a little closer, but not quite as close. And then this section right here was the courtyard for the women. If you were a Jewish woman, that's where you could go. And then for everyone else, if you're a Gentile, meaning if you're not a Jewish person, you had this big section out here. This is as close as you could get. This is where Jesus begins to go hulk on the entire crowd. Here's another picture to give you a sense of the size. This is larger than one and a half football fields in size. And it's in this area that Jesus begins to overturn tables. You say, well, why? What was going on? Here's what's happening. The people who were the insiders, those who were selling animals, which were required for sacrifice. So if you were a God-fearing Gentile, you loved God, but you were not a Jew, you still came to make sacrifice. And so you'd come and you'd have to buy an animal because very few people, if traveling very far, could bring their own animal from home to the temple without the animal getting sick or injured. And you had to bring a spotless, perfect lamb to the temple. And so you'd buy one there. But the people who were here, supposed to make it easy for those far from God to draw near, were charging three, four, five, even ten times what an animal should cost. And it was a crazy scene. There were hundreds 
And hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people packed into this place. In fact, during Passover, one historian, Josephus, said that during the week of Passover, over 255,000 animals would be bought, sold, and sacrificed. Can you imagine the smell and the sound and the people? And Jesus sees this, a place for those who were outside to draw near to God, being used as a means for those inside to keep people out. And Jesus says, this isn't okay. So he starts to flip over tables and he begins to make room for those. But there's something else going on here. It's not just that Jesus is dealing with a specific problem right then. Think about this. Think about this. Jesus is making room. He's clearing the temple because he knows that within a week from that day, the perfect lamb would be sacrificed for all and no future sacrifice need be made. And he comes into the heart of where they believe their relationship with God lies in the way that they look, the way they behave, and he puts a big X and he says, you think it's all about this. And he says, I'm telling you, the thing you think that's drawing you closer to me is keeping you further away from God. So here's what I want you to hear this morning. As I was thinking about this this week, this has just wrecked me, this passage. Uh, Because I find myself often looking very leafy, but not very fruitful. I feel like this kind of person at times, and maybe you can identify where you, you come and you look good, you do the right things, but you know something is missing. And so what you try to do, maybe you're like me, you try to fix the problem by doing more good stuff for God. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us have ever made little bargains with God? You kind of look at your life and you see that there's an area that is just not right. And so you begin to say to God, I tell you what, God, I will fix this over here and do more of this to make up for that. And he looks at us and he says, that's not how it works. Oh, but, but, but I, I will try harder here. I will work harder there. I will give more here. And he says, the problem you have is not your effort because your effort has never been good enough. The problem is much deeper. Or how about this? Some of us, we kind of get a little uncomfortable when Jesus comes into the center of our lives. You understand that every person is a city and every center of the person is the temple. In the ancient world, every city had a temple. It was a place where you would come to be close to God. It was the place that you worshipped the God of your city. Whatever that is, the thing that you elevated as utmost, of most importance. And you would sacrifice to that God. You would give up what you have. You would make uh, little concessions. Whatever you had to do for the God of your city. Every one of us, you are a little Jerusalem, I'm a little Jerusalem, and you've got a little temple, I've got a little temple, and each one of us in our lives has something that is vying for attention, vying for position. And the problem is, I think that if my world is to get better, it means all the things outside of me should get better. But here's what Jesus wants you to know. I I want you to put this up here in just a second here. Jesus wants you to know That the problem is not the circumstances around you. Because I think, well, if... God, my marriage would be amazing if it weren't for my wife. I mean, (laughs) come on, right? Because obviously, I am perfect. I, I, I mean, I wake up and I am sort of levitating as I'm laying on the bed. I don't know how I do it. I'm just, God, it's my wife. Would you fix my wife? 
By the way, you notice I'm using this analogy this morning because my wife is in we worship and not here to say, "Uh uh-uh. Okay, so there we go. Or maybe you say, no, 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 God, if you'll just fix the circumstances of my kids, I've got a strong-willed kid, I've got a situation here, and then, God, all life would be so good if you just fix my circumstances. Or maybe, God, would you just put a big X over my boss? I mean, really, put an X, get them out of here, and then everything would be okay. Or God, if you would this, or just this. And so many of us are wanting God to fix the circumstances of our lives. Hear me now, Jesus comes in not to fix your circumstances, but to deal with the sin of your life. Because he knows that that is the only thing that will fix you. My problem is not my circumstances. My problem is the sin in my life. And your problem is the sin in your life. And you say, no, it's not. These people, these... Okay, okay. Let's just have a little moment of honesty. Can we do this? Maybe. Here we go. I'm going to make a statement. And I want you to think on this for a moment. No one has harmed you, lied to you, disappointed you or offended you as many times as you have. Think about the person who's lied to you the most. Go ahead, put a name in your mind. Do not point to anyone right now, okay? And if someone's sitting next to you and you're like, mm-hmm, don't, don't do that, just look right at me. This is just a you and me. Okay, how many times has that person lied to you? Put a number in your head. 10 times? 20 a hundred? Wow. All right, now let's just compare it though. How many of us, just show of hands, how many of us have ever made a New Year's resolution? Would you just raise your hand real fast for me? How many of you have ever broken one of your New Year's resolutions? Anyone in here? You just lied to yourself, didn't you? You disapp- Okay, what about this? Uh, how many of you, maybe it's not a New Year's resolution, but you said, I will never do this again. Any of you have a this that you've said I won't do? I have have a ton of them. I I will never do this again. Okay, I'm trying to lose some weight, so I will never eat another donut again. How long did I keep that promise, church? I was making it as I was taking the second bite, baby. Never again. Mm. You and I are the ones who disappointed us the most, who have lied to us the most. Here's the reality. If God comes in and fixes everything around me but never deals with me, I will still be in trouble. The big X is not out there, church. The big X is in here. And it is a need for all of us to come to this God and to say to him, I can't, I need you, will you help me? And here's the cool thing about this. Jesus, he comes, and it's a progressive scene. He comes from the outside of their life, so to speak. He comes into Jerusalem, and this is the way it works for all of us. Jesus meets us one day, doesn't he? He comes along, and maybe you can remember that moment when you saw Jesus, and you looked at your life, and you said, oh, help me, save me. And like so many, perhaps you gave your life to Jesus, and you walked with him into the waters of baptism and he saved you. And you're like, yes, thank you. Now, Jesus, let's fix the circumstances. And he goes, nope, we, we got to go deeper into your life. I can't just stay on the perimeter of the city. I'm going to the heart of the issue, the heart of the matter. And he walks right in to the place that you hold as sacred, that thing that you sacrifice for, that thing that you hold up as ultimate. And he begins to flip tables and he says, hey, this has got to go. 
We need space because you will never experience the salvation you request until you make me Lord of your life. You cannot expect Jesus to save you if you will not let him be the one at the center of your life because at the end of the day, my problem is not what's happening out there. My problem is what's happening in my heart for me to find full salvation. By the way, you've been saved. The moment you give your life to Jesus, the moment you meet him in the water, the moment that you turn your gaze to him, you are as saved as you'll ever be. Don't don't miss this. But the freedom you so long for will only come when you don't simply cry out for a Savior, but you let Him come in and be the Lord as well as your Savior. The one who sits there, who makes the rules, who sets up shop, who clears out the other things that you love, that you've held on to, and He says, let's just, let's deal with this because I love you too much. Now, I know as soon as we talk about this, here's the reality. So many in this room, if you're like me, there's moments where you hear things and and, and maybe maybe you're sitting there thinking, I know the ex. I mean, I've known the ex for a long time. There's someone in this room right now, you know the ex, and the ex for you, it's a relationship, and you go, I know it's, that's, that's, I'm putting this relationship up as my God, and it is not, it is not, and it's wrecking things. You know that's your ex. For others, your ex is going to be a behavior. Maybe it's one that's private. No one else knows about it, but you know that one. You know this is the thing. It's, it's just there. And Jesus is pointing it out. He's saying, this is what we've got to deal with. And then for others in here, maybe it's not a private thing. Maybe you know the ex, and the ex is a very public situation. Or maybe the ex is an attitude issue that you continue to deal with. Or maybe the ex is that you hold on to your stuff. You find salvation in what you have. And this morning, Jesus, as the one who came in, as we cried out for help, he says, okay, I will help you, but understand, I'm going to come to the heart, and I'm going to deal with the thing that is ultimately needing fixed, and he wants to fix it. And hear me now, hear me now. Jesus never points out the problem to cause you pain. He points out the problem to liberate you from the pain. Jesus never comes to upturn your life and say, good luck. Jesus comes in and the things he will flip over are the things that have flipped you over in your life. He comes in because he loves you, because he cares for you, because he has a plan for your future. And there is nothing you have done, nothing you will do. There is nothing, there is nothing greater than his love for you, but for him to give you liberation. He's going to have to deal with the X. And so I want us this morning just to consider for a moment, what is that, what is that thing and what might God want us to do? I was talking to my son a couple nights ago. We were having one of these rare bonding moments that was more than just, hey, Dad, let me tell you about this latest technology. Or, hey, Dad, can I tell you about this cool thing I learned how to do? And then he does some goofy thing or makes some burp noise or whatever it is a little boy does. We had like one of those real moments. Yeah, you guys know real moments with kids? Have you had those before? They're, they're brilliant. They're wonderful moments. We, we had one of those. And we had this moment where he was asking about a few things going on in his life. And he said, Dad, I'm kind of scared to ask you about this. I said, well, why, buddy? because I don't know if you'll like me anymore. Parents, you know what that moment's like when you look at that little one that you 
that you do anything for. And you wish you could get from your head to their heart the truth that there is nothing that they can do to keep your love from them. Disappoint? Yeah, sure. Make you sad? Of course. But you know that your love is not for sale. And it can never be taken from them. And I looked at my little boy and I said, Buddy, that is not a possibility. You can always talk to me. You need to know something. This morning, there is a God who chose to come into a city knowing that the very same people who cried Hosanna would be less than a week later saying, crucify him. And yet, when people ask, how much do you love me, God? Jesus says, oh, I love you about this much. You need to know that whatever God says, here's the X. He doesn't do it to cause you pain, but to liberate you from the pain. There is nothing you can do to separate you. Paul, the author, says nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this morning, would you have the courage to say, Lord, what is that X? What is that thing? Maybe it's in the center of my life, the thing that I idolize, but what is it? And if you will be courageous enough to ask your Father to say, show me, will you trust Him enough that what He shows you is never to harm you, it is never to hurt you, it is to lead you to freedom, to joy, to fullness, fullness of life that is the offer that we are given today and by God's grace every day of the week. Amen. Praise God.